Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Quarkast. This is episode 11, as we are now in the month of June. It's June 6th, I'm Owen Newkirk, he's Sean Shapiro, and here we are, still deep in the pause, although things are starting to get rolling, and we'll get to the NHL news in a moment, but Sean, it seems, I know that we probably say this on a weekly basis, it seemed like March took, what, nine months to get from the beginning to the end, and it was only, what, three weeks from the pause, and then April and May, I mean, relatively speaking, felt like it just blew by. Uh, April did. May May was less so, I think. You think? I think, for me at least. I mean, it was one of those, like, I feel like it's been, uh, April kind of blew by. I think May felt long to me. Okay. But not like March. No. Yeah. Well, we've had quite the last week, as there's been a ton to talk about. In our second and third segments today, Sean and I will get into the news of the, I say of the day, but really the news of the last couple of weeks around the globe, dealing with systemic racism, police brutality, um, and a lot of dealing with how humans should be treating each other on a personal level. But we'll get to that, because... The NHL keeps cranking out some news, and we have some more updates for you that we're going to discuss right here, right now. Let's go in reverse order, because even though it was the most recent thing, we have a lot more to discuss on the announcement prior to that. So the the most recent thing is Phase 2, which is a bit of a surprise, because I knew that they were close, but I wasn't expecting yesterday for the NHL to announce a second item, because they had a a previous announcement about some more details on the playoff format, which we'll get into. But then later, Sean, they decided, or they announced that Phase 2 will actually begin on Monday, which is June 8th. And of course, for those of you listening that can't remember what the phase differentials are, Phase 2 is when team facilities are now open for small groups of players to come in and use, which means that the practice rinks, ice, weight rooms, locker rooms can be utilized for groups of up to six players. This is a, a step, Sean, because this sort of kind of gives them a chance to at least optimistically hit phase three, which is the full training camp on, they said, we'll start no earlier than July 10th. Now, this was announced much prior to the one about phase two yesterday, but they still have a chance to try to hit those target dates. What do you think about phase two, and is it going to be a rush to the rink? Because I don't think it is. Yeah, I don't I mean, I think them opening phase two, I actually don't think it's that big of a deal, just to be honest. Like, it's, it's something where teams have the option. There's some teams that are still deciding whether they're going to open their facilities or not. And I think really what it became, honestly, I think when I, I kind of look at this setup and why it is, I think really one of the main reasons they're opening phase two was they said, okay, we have to have something available for the players that are still in their home cities. And I think that's really what it boils down to. Just to be honest, you've got, you've got players skating back in Sweden and Finland and Russia already. You've got guys in Canada that are starting to skate. You've got, you've got guys that are starting to skate away from their team facilities. And so I think it was kind of just more of a formality of let's open we can't open, for example, in Dallas, the Stars aren't allowed to open the team facilities for Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan, who are in Dallas, to go skate in Ben Bishop until 
they are until it's phase two has officially started. And so I think this is more of just a formality of like, okay, we're acknowledging people are starting to skate around the world. We need to at least have that option open. I don't think this changes any timelines. I don't think this really moves things up at all. I think it's more of a just kind of a formality of we need to be able to have these options available, but um, this doesn't change really. This doesn't change much in my mind, especially when we consider, and I've double checked with even some more players since it was announced that you still have a lot of players who have no plan to come back for phase two. Phase, right. And like, you said I, earlier that there were GMs around the league, or at least you had heard yeah. some reporting, that they were telling players to stay put for phase two. Yeah, there are some GMs who are telling players that, hey, it would make more sense if you have a good setup where you are right now, stay there, keep skating there, don't need to uproot your family or do or get away from your family right now. And at the same time, it puts less of a strain on us trying to staff these, to staff uh, individual guys for each group. Like, for example, one of the things, um, not in Dallas, but I was talking to with, with someone in Edmonton, um, they think that on Monday in Edmonton, there'll be five guys maybe skating in phase two, but none of the five will play in game one. Like, like it's, it's, it's like, it's that type. It's, it's five sure. players who are maybe from the Edmonton area or, but these guys are all in the black ace may not even make the team area. So it's not like Connor McDavid is flying to, to Edmonton to, to train or anything like that. So. Well, the one good news, and like you said, it may not be groundbreaking that they're doing this, but it does, I, maybe they could go from phase two to three in a heartbeat. I just felt like when I saw that, it said, okay, because you have to have some steps. And I think that for the sake of the medical professionals, the epidemiologists and other, you know, serious individuals that have been, you know, hired by the NHL to advise them during this needs to see a successful phase two before they can sign off on going to the next phase, even if it's not that long. And now in this case, it could be at least a month and a half, right? Because yeah. June 8th to July 10th, well, would be five weeks, just about. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. But I just, again, maybe it's just a landmark. Maybe it's no more than a, a figurehead of speech. Is I think that there may be some benefit to just seeing, okay, they can do that. Because you know yeah. Sagan's going to go skate, and Jamie Ben will, and most likely Jordy Ben if he's around, which I think he is. And uh, maybe you'll see Blake Coleman go to the facility. I mean, we won't see him because we're not allowed in there for that. Um, I guess the other question I had about this before we move on to the more juicy details that they announced about the playoff format was just, we know that the Children's Health Star Centers are have phased reopenings, and they're getting close to having a lot of things going on. And how does the NHL balance that where they know that these, you know, not all these facilities are private just for the team to practice and then sit dark the rest of the day? I mean, they, there have to be some pretty strict procedures for medical safety before they're going to let their NHL guys be exposed to something. Yeah, um, I don't know. And it, that's a question that I asked Jim Nolan last week, and he still didn't know at that time. And I don't know if he got an answer yet. He still, I guess the, the question comes to define what is facility mean too, right? Like um, right now in that big document, that 22-page document, it says, no media, no trainers, no whatever for phase two, no non-essential per- in the facility. But does facility 
does facility mean the de or the that you know like people? So the Dallas Stars have their own kind of separate parking garage in Frisco, right? Well, it's in it's within the parking garage, but they have their own gate, right? Right, and they have their own yeah. entrance that could be away from the rest of the public. Yeah, and so does facility just mean back beyond the locker room and when they're on the ice, or does facility mean when those group of six are skating that that you can't have people in who are going to be on the other ice? Like I don't, it, it just it's a big question of what or is how you deal with going from, let's say they have some sort of public skate or mm -hmm. uh, adult drop-in skate, or even later where they get to things like, you know, hey, men's youth ho or men's rec hockey. Kids, or kids camps kids and stuff camps. like that. Yeah. How do you, because you know they're going to use the benches. So if yeah. it's a shared space, how do you properly clean and disinfect? I mean, I'm not saying they can't do it. I'm just, just merely pointing out some of the hurdles they have to be aware of because if you're trying to isolate your players from exposure, any contact with the public, even if it's sort of a secondary thing, yeah. is dangerous. And it, I'm going to be fascinated to see how people police this because I'm sure there will be people who, um, I'm sure there's going to be people who show up to say, I want to watch Tyler Sagan and Jamie Vinsky. Of course. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. I mean, I'm telling anyone listening, you shouldn't. It's it's not really smart. It doesn't really work with the protocol where we are right now. But if uh, but you're going to have people who say, "I oh, I'm just going to go." And so, how is that? Is that going to be policed? Like, it's going to be interesting to see how all of this how all of this works because um, it doesn't really. There, there's still a lot of questions, kind of that 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 apply into all of this right now well that was so that came out later in the day yesterday and obviously that was an interesting tidbit but i think something perhaps that's more tangible and that we'll have more discussion on right now is the first announcement sean is the nhl earlier in the day yesterday which was thursday announced more details of the playoff format and i think they hit this one out of the park now there's four main topic yep. talking points so let's go through them one by one but the first thing was they announced that the series lengths that while we all knew that the qualifying round would most likely be a best of five, it will indeed, they confirmed that. And then they had left previously up in the air the length of the second and third rounds, insisting Gary Bettman did in his announcement a week ago Tuesday that it would be best of seven for the conference final and the Stanley Cup final. But they didn't necessarily say five or seven for the first two rounds. And I had speculated at the time that it was for flexibility for mm -hmm. the length of this whole postseason tournament format yeah. in case they couldn't squeeze it in the calendar. Well, the, the first thing on the return to play details that they came out with was it's going to be best of seven for all four of the normal rounds. Only the qualifying round will be best of five. And, Sean, this is great. I, I mean, I know I wouldn't have been really up in arms if the next if this the first and second rounds were best of five but this is just it makes it feel more of a legitimate thing even with some weird quirks to this setup no it's great i i actually i was i was surprised they did it i thought we might see something where they would go like okay first round would be best of five second round might be best go best of seven from there sure. i was kind of i was pleasantly surprised to see it because i think it does give um as as weird as this whole thing is going to be it does give more of that legitimacy of this is at least you still had the playoff. Whoever wins the Stanley Cup will have had to win 16 games. Right. And I think that's something. 
Oh yeah, but That's 16, right. yeah, 16 right. playoff, sixteen playoff games, not and counting so, the, the qualifying yeah. round, right? And so I think that's something that I think it keeps a little bit of, it gives a little bit of that legitimacy and makes it. Um, um, we all know this is going to be looked at as a weird year, but at least to, it will still be okay. They won sixteen; they had to win sixteen games to win the Stanley Cup in the playoffs, and I think keeping that was important. Um, which um, so I, I think that was a that was that was a great development. And I think what it also does too is it's so you may have you may have some upsets in the in the play in round and that may happen. I, I understand that there will. I don't think the higher seed's gonna win every series. No, I don't think so either. Yeah. But but best of seven the best of seven you still have the better team is winning more often than in the best of five. And you actually have to be the better team. To win, now, you don't have to be the better team, but if you've won the, the best of seven in that series, yes. But if you win a best of seven, I feel like you can legitimately say we were the better team in that series. Yeah. If I mean, you if you're a team griping about losing a playoff round and you lost four games, yeah, hard to unless you absolutely got it stolen by bad officiating, which is usually not the case, or what have you. I, maybe the Vegas Golden Knights have a complaint about that, but essentially. I think you're right. I think if you play seven or, or a best of seven, if you can't beat the opposition over that length of time, you lost. Yeah. Um, well, in Vegas also, they let up three goals on I know, one power. But I'm That's, just saying that if yeah. that was called correctly, the Vegas Golden Knights don't lose that game. True. So um, the big one of this announcement, and there were two others that we'll get to, is the seeding format. They've decided yep. that they are going to reseed in each round which means that the highest remaining seed in the conference will play the lowest remaining seed and so on and so forth down the ranks. Following the qualifying round, which has already been placed, the first round they'll reseed, second round they'll reseed, and then obviously the conference finals you don't need to reseed because there's only two teams on either side. Sean, this is... You and I have been clamoring for this to go back to prior to the divisional format realignment where they changed it away from top eight in the conference with division winners and then the next and then reseeding. I mean, this is the way it should be all the time. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's, this is how, um, this is how it should be. This is how you sh- you should have in a regular year. In my opinion, you should go one through eight and you should just reseed. The reseed is it, it, it create it keeps the best teams in the playoffs. It, we don't we don't ever run into a situation where the second and third place team in the Western Conference are playing in the second round or the first round or whatever. I love the Dallas and, Stars and the St. Louis Blues in exactly. twenty sixteen. Yeah, and, and and so we we don't ever run into that. And then and also, the other, I think th- it, it legitimizes even more a really good regular season performance. Exactly, and that was going to be my next yeah. point. It puts it actually puts value on the regular season. Like I saw, there was some I was having some conversation with people on Twitter about this the other day, and I know you agree with me, so I have to bring in this counterpoint because <laughs> otherwise, you I had I had people on Twitter saying like, well, that doesn't like. That doesn't seem fair. If you're an eight seed and you upset the one seed, what 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 advantage what advantage does that give you? And my mission is why does the eight seed deserve an advantage? It should the eight, the eight seed deserves no advantage. Your advantage for being the eight seed is you were lucky, not lucky. You got in and nine didn't. That's right. what your advantage is. Yes. <laughs> like it's. Let me ask you like, this. Yeah. Interesting. This year, because of this new format, because of all this yeah. goofiness, we'll actually have two reseedings which mm-hmm. ordinarily wouldn't happen you would just reseed because you know you have your playoff yep. standings 
first round, reseed for the second, and then you don't need it for the conference final. Yeah. But we'll actually see this in two rounds, which I think is really interesting because you can't predict who's going to play who at all because yeah. there's so many variables. No, and, and, and that's the other thing. It, it, what, what I think the reseeding also did, which I think is huge, it added value to the round robin for seeding. Right, and that actually segues perfectly yeah. into the third point that the NHL sent out was the round robin tiebreaker. Ties in a round robin, because they're going to play a group, right? So yep. four teams in each conference will play the top four seeds with those seedings on the line. And whoever has the most points or the best records in this group play will be seeded one through four. Now, Sean, you and I are big soccer fans. We see this all the time, whether it's in Champions League group play, Europa League group play, World Cup is the one that really stands out, of course, because it's the biggest stage. But a lot of times teams end up with the same number of points at the end of a group, and then they have tiebreakers like goal differential or goal scored or head-to-head -head record mm -hmm. to progress them through to the knockout stage. Well, in this case, all the teams are progressing. It's more for seeding, but the league announced that they will use the regular season points percentage as the tiebreaker in seeding for the round robin, and then those seeds will stick for the rest. So it doesn't yeah. matter how far they go, they'll be one through four. And I'm completely, I think this is, I don't know if any other way would have been better. I like that. I like that it's not, well, you played, you know, Dallas lost to Vegas, but they beat Colorado, so they'll be getting yeah. to bump. You should reward the teams. And this is, it's not a victory for St. Louis and Boston, but it's at least a, a little bit of a, a mollifier, don't you think? Yeah, I think the one thing I may have considered, and I don't know how it would have received, is I would have maybe gone into it with, Maybe you give St. Louis and Boston a half a point coming in. Like, just kind of the handicap of you were right. this much better during the regular season. You, like... I would have been that, okay with that. that that's the yeah, It's like, I, I kind of laugh at the fact that the Bruins won the President's Trophy, but they're not going to be guaranteed. Like, to me... To, yeah, they don't have... Home ice, which we'll get to in a minute, like to, guaranteed yeah, to, for the playoffs. So for me, the brew, like I would have said, and I, I like what they did. Just the one thing I would have done is, hey, you know what? Let's add maybe the Bruins and the Blues come in with an with an extra point or half a point or wh whatever, just something to be like, hey, here's your reward. You were better for seventy games or sixty eight games or whatever it is. You deserve that. Um, the other thing that I thought of just now when we're thinking and just because it, and it can't happen because of how these formats will be because we simply won't have the ice for it, but. <laughs> You remember in group play, the last game of group play, the team, the games happen at the same time. That's right, so that you don't have the, uh, what's the best way to describe it? It's uh, a gentleman's agreement to sort of manipulate the final standings because we already know we're both in. Yeah. Or, hey, we can both get in and let this team not make it. I mean, again, this is a little different, Sean, because everybody gets in. Because every, everybody's in, so there will be less of that. But I think it, yeah. it is interesting. It, it will be interesting as far as an element of, say you are, um, say you're Vegas. I'm just going to pick a team out of the West. And you're Vegas, and your last game is against Dallas. Um, if you are, um, actually, they're a bad, they're, they're probably a, they're a bad example because they they have two they actually have two goalies. So let's go with let's go with St. Louis. If you're St. Louis and your last game is against Dallas, and the other game is played before yours, and if all if if that game locks in your seating no matter what, I'm probably not playing Jordan Bennington. I'm not playing Ryan O'Reilly. I'm not playing any of. I'm not. Right. I'm not playing if my seating. But 
and just and that's just kind of a small wrinkle of how, how do you I don't think even if no matter what's on the line yeah. Ben Bishop would start all three games in that group. I just don't. I think that, I, don't think I know so they're, they're going to have two exhibition games. Yeah. But I would my guess would be that when they play this three that Bishop starts two and Hudobin starts one. That's my I guess. Agree with that. I would agree with that. Just because no matter what, like th- here's the thing. There's no way that the round robin games will have the same well, that, intensity but, of but, a qualifying but, round. But that's game. but that's why when I mentioned St. Louis, I mentioned a team that had like St. Dallas, I would imagine, will use both goalies. Yeah. Vegas will use both goalies in this round robin. Colorado, I don't know who their goalie... Like, I mean, I don't know who you... Like, Colorado is less right. of a... Dallas and Saint, Dallas and Vegas are in spots of, okay, you have a 1A and 1B we trust to both. Colorado goes into this of... Colorado might be using both to see who do we start in game one of the actual Very playoffs. Much, whether it be Grubauer <laughs> or Francouz, right. Yeah. I mean, so. again... On the other side, Boston clearly has a, a, a 1A1B. Mm-hmm. Um, Rask is their number one, but Halak's been great. They just won the Jennings Trophy for the best goaltending tandem for the regular season. How about Tampa Bay, though? They have a clear one and a clear step down to their backup. Yeah. Vasilevsky doesn't play three games, in my mind, for that. I wonder, too, if you're Tampa Bay, if Vasilevsky plays more than 20 minutes of the exhibition games. It just depends on if he wants it, right? It's like, like Bishop, uh, yeah. do you want to get 60 minutes of in to yeah. get back in that rhythm? Yeah. That's what I would think. Um, the last part, you mentioned home ice, the team with home ice. Uh, the, the league announced that the qualifying round, the team that has the higher seed will be considered the home team, just like you would in a traveling series where you'd go to the other team's arena. Home team will be games one, two, and five, which makes sense. You'd be two at home, two is the road team in games three and four, and then that... In game five, they'd be the home team again. And then yeah. in the best of seven, it will be in the first three rounds. So first, second, conference finals, the team with the higher seed will be the home team for games one, two, five, and seven, which yep. means they'd be the road team for three, four, and six. The one difference is that they will not use seeding for the Stanley Cup final. It will use regular season points percentage for that, you know, that, that series, which would be the final round. Sean, that's a little bit of a nugget for the those teams like Boston and St. Louis. Again, again, not enough, I don't think, for what yeah. they've done, but a little bit of hey, if you get there, it doesn't matter if you lose the the seeding series, you'll be that. Now, remember too that as the home team in a hub city style format. Now we may be different. Conference final, Stanley Cup final, may, they may actually get to play those in their own buildings. We don't know that, but. If they aren't, if they're in this neutral site or empty stadium, the big thing is not the crowd and the familiarity and having the fans behind you. It's the tactical of last change. Yeah, that's and that's really it. I you, you kind of mentioned a big deal, right? Yeah, it's one thing that's going to be interesting to me is going to be see. Um, it's going to be fascinating. Just kind of a, a minor note on this is. There's a lot of the arenas are now very similar. There's not many places like Detroit was known for so long for having the overactive bouncy boards. That's not really the case. Dallas is actually known for having boards that are a little bit more bouncier than some other places. It's going to be interesting to see some of the quirks I think that we're going to learn about certain arenas that we did that we didn't realize were there that maybe someone who watches every game there like cuz we're going to all of a sudden say the hub city is Vegas and we're going to watch 
I'm doing way too much. We're going to watch a ton of games that happen in just the Las Vegas arena, and we're going to and we're going to notice things like you know what? It there's there's a those boards look bouncier, or there's a little bit more of or or like I think that there's tiny quirks that we may not have noticed about certain arenas because you don't you're not there enough to see them. Right. I mean, that, one that, of the examples is that Dallas has the shortest glass. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, allowed yes. by the NHL. It's five feet high on the sides. And they do that for television broadcasting purposes. I learned that a year or two ago talking to Razor about it. He, he mentioned it. I said, well, why is it so short? Well, it's because of the TV angle where the cameras are. And, and, mm -hmm. and that's interesting because, well, the stars are used to it. You wonder if you get that many more pucks over the glass and delay a game penalties because of it. Those mm -hmm. kind of little nuances might really show. I, I'm not thinking there's going to be a ton, especially if it's an uh, arena like Vegas because it's so new. It seems like yeah. they're really homogenized inside the playing surface. <laughs> yeah. Um, the last thing, that we talked about the NHL now, so that's all coming out, and I think those are good. Obviously, they still haven't gotten to Phase 3, which really starts to ramp up where this is headed is just the news of the past week, Sean, about what the coronavirus and the financial limitations yeah. and what's going on with every NHL club is forcing, but particularly a Dallas Stars. The Stars had to make some pretty difficult decisions, the GM Jim Nill, because this is no longer a normal off, you know, sort of season. And, yeah. and because they don't have the same cash flow that they would normally have, they had to, to not do some business that they might otherwise have done. Yeah, obviously, some of the things that came up. Up first is one of the things just kind of notable, just because of how long he's been with the organization. Is Les Jackson is no longer with the, his, his as of June thirtieth, his contract will expire and it will not be renewed. Um, Les was with the Stars for thirty four of the past thirty five years. Um, the they also let a scout go as well, and then and those are those are decisions that Jim Neal had to make because of finance financial um, implications. To me, the bigger, kind of more most noticeable one, though, that I think we should talk about is the Stars not signing Curtis Douglas to an entry-level contract because of the finances of a pandemic. To me, that is the one that kind of stands out the most because while Les Jackson has had an impact, it's hard to find a roster Les Jackson hasn't had an impact on with how long he's been here. Um, Les was getting closer to the end of his career anyway. He still plans to kind of find another job. That's his hope. But it's also um, it's something where you're not going to see that in the day-to-day -day as much as the fact of they didn't – Curtis Douglas is the type of prospect Jim Nill would have loved to sign and see what happens. Oh, my and, goodness, yes. And they weren't – because of the financial situation, they weren't allowed to buy that lottery ticket, basically. Let me ask you this. When it comes yeah. to this, so the Stars decided that they can save $70,000 because let's say I mean, yeah. entry level, he most likely yeah. would have been in the AHL. I don't think he would have wowed everybody and made yeah. the NHL roster, but that's okay. I mean, it's fine. What does that mean for the other AHL players, guys who are maybe – uh, the sort of getting into veteran status around the AHL that aren't on NHL entry-level contracts or even on current two-ways, the AHL isn't going to play for a while, we think, mm -hmm. even if they do come back for next season. I feel like that's going to really hurt those players. Yeah, I mean, really, the players that moved or that, that made moves early on contracts are going to be, are the ones that are going to, 
that look really smart. Like, for example, the Stars made an AHL trade for Anthony Luis down in Texas during this season. Luis is already signed to an AHL contract for next season. Um, that deal was kind of, was had already, they'd already agreed to that before the stoppage. It was one of those deals where, obviously, you know Scott White very well. It's one of those deals where they had kind of agreed, hey, we're going to sign this deal, and it just kind of had, didn't trickle out for a little bit. Right. It was um, done, it, but not announced. It, Yes. Sure. Um, and that's yeah, and that's because it was an AHL deal, and good for Anthony Luis that they got that done. Because if I don't know if the Stars can offer Anthony Luis an AHL contract in full faith right now, like if, if he had just kind of waited to see what his options are. I know that there's there, we're looking at, at situations where players, if there's an opportunity in Europe. Scout uh, agents are telling them you should take it right now because we don't know whether the AHL is going to play and what it's going to look like when it returns. Right. There's there's so many kind of moving factors here. Of the AHL is so gate driven, it requires so much on attendance, and if you can't get people in the stands, even for start of the season, for, for the start of the season, and maybe and it's a league that can't really be pushed back the way the NHL can be manipulated and everything like that. You could see this whole just full-blown taxi squad setup, or you could see setups where I've heard ideas floated around that, you know what, maybe maybe you have kind of a condensed AHL prospect tournament type thing, where, and it's not everyone, it's not guys like Curtis Douglas, it's, we're going to take... You're going to take Thomas Harley, Ty Delandria, we're going to take the four or five top guys... And they may be on a team with the St. Louis Blues prospects, and they may be on a team with, they may form one team with, and and, and it's going to be kind of, and Dallas is probably going to push and say, I need a spot for a goalie, I need Jake Otten. But like, you you could have, we could have some really creative solutions. And the other thing, too, that just comes into play, too, is with with Douglas, um, just use him because he is the, the example here. He could have gone back to the OHL for his overage year. He probably, and he, and he probably will now, but. Because the lack of spots available around the league, because of because of the potential of minor league teams not running in the ECHL and the AHL not running, you could have overage spots in the Canadian Hockey League get gobbled up real fast too. And yes. so you could have you could have a trouble finding a place for a player to play who, because OHL teams and CHL teams only get three overage spots. So it's not like every single guy who's 21 can say, okay, well, you know what? I'll go back for my overage year. You, that's not possible either. So, Boy, it's going to be an interesting trickle-down, isn't it? Yeah. Well, a lot going on that front. We'll keep an eye on how this coming week goes with Phase 2 coming in and players starting to report even voluntarily, of course, because there's no mandate uh, at the team facilities. But up next, it's time to dive into the news of the world Today, the last week and a half or so, as we really break into what's been on everybody's minds. turn aside from hockey for a moment here for our next segment we'll bring hockey back into the fold or maybe we'll just 
combine our next two segments, Sean and I decided that we were going to push back the 1999 classic game review of the Stars Avalanche Western Conference Final Series another week. I know it's been now two straight Quarcasts without a classic game, but we felt two things. One, 99 series isn't going anywhere. That's the beauty of reviewing classic games is that they don't change, so time is is not a factor with that. And while that does interrupt our 99 run you know, schedule, we kind of need to spend a little bit of time talking about the issues of the day. And Sean, I, as we get into this, I keep thinking back to the segment we did a few weeks ago after Akeem Alou came out with a, a very personal story. And this was before all the incidents surrounding George Floyd in, in Minneapolis and everything around the country that's gone on since then with protests and then riots and police brutality happening in front of us to both protesters and the press. I'm sure you'd like to get in on that a little bit in terms of the conversation. But uh, Akeem was dealing with this in the public when he was sort of out on an island. And he talked about being alone in his hockey playing days and how he felt because it was sort of nobody else can understand what I'm going through because all my teammates are white and they don't have this sort of systemic discrimination against me against them like I do. So nobody really understands. It's it's like saying you understand to a soldier that's been in uh you know in a combat zone. I can't say that because I haven't. I can't say, "Oh, well, I know how you're feeling." You just yeah. can't, right? You can't you can listen and and be empathetic and understanding, but you can't turn around and say, "Oh, I know exactly what you mean." until you've had the bullets whizzing by your head and dealing with the traumatic stress that goes along with that. He was sort of out in front of, I mean, of course, he was out in front of this. And so it was really, I feel really good that you and I brought that conversation out into the public sphere before this, just because, look, I'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back too much here, but it just feels like, oh, look, we're not just being reactionary to overwhelming societal pushes that maybe we have a glimmer of awareness, even though we're saying we don't know. And I thought, this, as I thought about that, I went, okay, well, I'm at least a little bit pleased with, with us for doing it before it became socially acceptable or, or easier and safer to talk about. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we had that. I'm glad we had this conversation before with, with, with the Kim Alou article that came out. We talked about it before. And, um, and obviously... This is the type of thing where it, the sad thing is it it shouldn't we shouldn't have to use the word socially acceptable to talk about this and no. that's the sad thing and then the other the other thing that I think it was why it's important for us to talk about this is a lot of the stuff and a lot of the things that you read and and a lot that has to a lot of and by no means am I an expert by no means are you an expert or anything like this but a lot of this, a lot of where we need to be as a world is there needs to be conversations between people like you and I. We're two white people. We need to be able to have this conversation. Right. We need to, we need to, yes, it's important to have the conversation and speak with the black community, but I think it, it, this is important conversations for us to have between you and I with, with your friends, with, 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 for white people to talk to other white people and kind of realize that, hey, we need to be better as a society and not just be in kind of an echo chamber of, well, we're not racist, you're not racist, so we're all good. Like, that's, like, it's important to, we are all in echo chambers kind of sometimes, and so I think it's important that if when we are in those echo chambers of 
we're two white men who cover hockey to each other, we should be able to have those conversations of are we doing the right thing? Are we remembering the other side? Are we are we doing our part to at least to to make the world a little bit better if we can? And so I think these these conversations are important and obviously the last week has has, has shown a lot of that, especially um, especially in a sport like we cover where it is a very white sport. It's hard to find on a, on a day-to-day basis. It's very hard to find a minority in, in kind of the day-to-day that, that we go, that we see. And it's also, um, it's also a sport that hasn't been very open in public about speaking out on things. And so that's something that is, it, this is an important conversation. I know I rambled there, but I feel like you got a little bit of the point, I guess. <laughs> Just trying to let you go, because I yeah. get accused of interrupting yeah. you all the time, and or I, I do, but trying not to jump in on when it gets more serious. Here, my take on this whole thing, and for those listening, everybody has to be aware of what's going on, because I don't think you can, even if you're not big into the news, it's all over social media right now. So you, I don't think anybody's of really avoiding this. Now, maybe, maybe if you're a healthcare frontliner for coronavirus and you've been in the hospital for 12-hour shifts and, and just staying off of that, I, I, maybe. But again, I think everybody's exposed to it. And the thing that really stands out to me, Sean, is that for the people pushing back, right? For example, so Black Lives Matter has, is not a new concept, right? No. But, in the past, one of the counter arguments that has been thrown out there, and it's really kind of disturbingly self-absorbed, is that they say all lives matter. Of course all lives yeah. matter, but that's not the point. The point is is that the group of the black community that has been dealing with generational racism and, and, and hurdles to keep them from getting to the same opportunity that white people have. And I'm not saying this is any sort of uh, guilt, which I think is a really poor thing that I've seen on social media lately, talking about, oh, you're just feeling bad about what you feel. It's not guilt. It's empathy. You feel shame for the way people have been treating other people. I, I don't feel guilt, Sean, for being born a white person in the United States. I feel empathy that not everybody that is in the United States, or for that matter, around the world, is treated with any sort of modicum level of decency and respect because these people get, you know, in the minority community seem to be getting stripped of their human dignity and treated differently. And we can understand that because I've never had the thought in my head is I'm going to have to explain to my boys, I have two boys, how they need to react if they, they're not a driving age, thank goodness, we got a ways to go. That's a hurdle I want to deal with later. But I have a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old. At some point, when they start venturing off on their own, you have to think of, listen, you have to drive carefully. You look around. You know, be a defensive driver. A lot of bad drivers out there. But the, it hadn't crossed my mind, hey, if you get pulled over, this is how you act to the police or how you, you stay alive. Mm-hmm. And that's a constant conversation. And it's just one instance, but... Again, if you could just put aside your own selfishness of what about me? Well, what about people that are have maybe worse off than you? We all life throws curveballs at everybody, and everybody struggles in one way or another. Some more than others. I'm not saying that it's an even playing field of, of suffering, but every, life is not easy at times. 
I mean, one of the things that's as, as you're kind of one of the things that just to kind of jump in real quick. One of the things that I've seen that's a great. It shouldn't take this kind of argument, but they see it shouldn't take an argument to defend this. But people say Black Lives Matter, and someone responds with All Lives Matter. And I've seen some of the things where two houses are on fire, yes, and someone. Yes, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, or the other the other thing is, and, and someone said, "Why do you need?" Uh, so if you say if I say Black Lives Matter and someone says but all lives matter, why do you need to say a, a word but after after no. the statement Black right. Lives Matter? Like, well, no, yeah. no, no, no. But but I'm going yeah. to push down your yeah. cause because my cause is more important. It's yeah. very self focused, right? And like, I love that meme. It's the one yeah. that we've seen um, where somebody says, "Hey, can, send the fire department. Come on over. My house is on fire." And somebody yeah. says, well, what about my house? And then they go back to the first person. And she goes, well, my house is, your, your house isn't on fire. Yeah, but my house matters too. Yeah. Well, yes, of course, but yours is not on fire right now. No one said your house didn't matter. <laughs> like it's, so no, I'm it's, laughing at it, but it is yeah. really, really serious. It's the fact that, yeah. look, you know, it's, it's like saying that, you know, you know, certain groups of, are deeming are violent towards each other. That's really important. Okay, well, heart disease kills lots of people. Let's worry about heart disease. Well, it's like you can't have more than one thing of awareness. You know, well, cancer is affecting everybody. Yeah. Well, we can't possibly think about systemic racism because of cancer. Actually, we could probably have enough on our plates to look at everything, right? Yeah. But right now, this this issue is is in the forefront, and the it. I know that it's. It's disturbing to a lot of people to watch destruction and violence happen when it comes to looting and rioting. And, okay, don't let it distract you from the main point, which is that we need to be better as a society in terms of how we treat our own citizens, let alone people from other countries. Our own people aren't given what should be basic human dignities. Then, tack on to that... That no matter what you talk about, there's always going to be a small minority of people. And I use minority very delicately here because we're not talking about race here. We're talking about a small group of people that are going to try to abuse the system. Okay? So for all the things like, for example, food stamps. All the, mm-hmm. the, the vast majority of food stamps helps people that don't have the means to feed their families. It's very important so they don't starve. There are some people that abuse the food stamp program and sell them for other things or whatever, but that doesn't mean you should scrap the whole thing because of a few bad eggs or bad apples. And I think that happens, and I'm just using that as one random example. I think that happens everywhere, right? There are people rioting and looting. Now, some of it may have to do with we don't know what else to do because we've tried to be peaceful and take a knee and do other things and nobody listens. But, Sean, I, I still think that you should look over the, the small bad apples and look at the majority and what they're doing. Yeah, and, I mean, the other issue, too, just in all of this, and this is kind of what, what, what incited all of the, 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 the... incited everything was we also have to kind of look, too, of it's... You have to look at what escalates things, too. There are things where exactly. you, you take a look at Particularly, for example, in Dallas, I just because I know some people who have been down there and have been marching and, and, and protesting. Where, for example, I know uh, 
one of my my colleagues who writes about the Mavericks, Tim Cato. He was he was one of the uh, he's been tweeting about it. Yeah, he was, and he he wrote he wrote a really good piece actually for D Magazine, just kind of a first person account of what it's like where. They were following rules, they had everyone praying with them, they were outside the curfew zone, and then they were basically, to use the word, they were basically kettled onto the bridge, which is a phrase of where, hey, where you can be peaceful, but there's nowhere to disperse to, and we're going to basically kind of powder keg you, and, st- and, and, and they, they, were, they were arrested and everything like that. And so uh, it's important to remember that where the escalation comes from in in to, to, and, and I'm not saying. I mean, and I'm not at, saying. Yeah. Look at what peaceful protest. If you suddenly see a wall of riot gear police mm-hmm. marching towards you with all the tactical armor and weaponry to show up for a fight, what are your group of peaceful protesters supposed to think? I'm not saying go go charge full yeah. on and have a war. What I am saying is is that if you see the police in a really aggressive, threatening stance, it's going to make the other side very nervous. It leads to fear, and when people are scared, they make bad decisions. Jumpy, oh yeah. Yeah, like it's... And I just, look, we've seen... The the other thing on this is the media coverage. You talked about your colleague Tim and being involved. We've seen both from journalists, professional journalists, and also people just using their cell phone cameras to document a lot of these things. Now... You have to take it with a grain of salt because context is really important in all this. Somebody can clip a part of a video and mm-hmm. not see the greater things and, and you can rush to judgment. And that's the scary thing in all this, Sean, is that, you know, for example, there was a peaceful protest. It was a march walk in Frisco uh, a few days ago from Warren Park, which is not too far from my house, down El Dorado towards the tollway and back. And the police were involved. They gave a, they blocked off a road so they could do this. They were marching with them. And it, all, for all accounts, and I had some neighbors that were there, it w- went off really, really well, and it was a very emotional, moving scene. Before that even happened, there were people on Twitter and other social media outlets like Facebook or whatever that saw a couple of pallets of bricks and tweeted out, oh my God, look, this is some sort of uh, extremist group trying to stir up trouble by placing these... And, of course, that created rampant fear. And, and of course, ignorance leads into more chaos. And it turned out that some of the stuff that was used was a public works construction project that they ended up moving anyway. And then one was an HOA. You know, that we see a lot of brick fences around HOAs uh, that they build. And that's one half of the issue that I wanted to bring up was how, and we see this in all facets of reporting, how the rush to be first doesn't always mean that you're right, and it leads to a lot of disinformation and bad journalism. The other side is that seems to be police targeting of media, and that's really, really concerning as well. Yeah, I mean, we've seen some of we've seen some of that, which has been um, like I think one of the ones that sticks out to me, kind of one of the one of the more is I saw there was it was a scene in Columbus where the there was a couple students from the uh, student the Ohio State student paper and they had shown their there's a picture of it uh, where they show their press pass to the police officer peacefully and then a second later they're getting pepper sprayed like yeah why just, were they like
physical threat to the law enforcement yeah. officer that did that. And if they were, what was it? Because it wasn't shown. And mm -hmm. if they weren't, then why do you need to violently attack anybody, whether it's a protest yeah. or a member of the media, if they're not uh, inciting violence on themselves? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you take a look at things like that and you see the, there's the, the CNN event where in Minneapolis where the, the news team is literally arrested on yeah. camera while they're, while they're reporting back to the yeah. news headquarters. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's a thing where you have, and I don't know, it's, it's, it, I wonder, and I don't, and I'm not the expert to talk on this, but I, it, part of it, I wonder how much of it is when you're sending someone out in riot gear and you're sending them out in, in a fight, you're, set, you're sending them out like they're armed for a battle. You almost wonder if they're gearing themselves up literally and to use, figuratively. To use it. Right. Like it's, yeah. Like I'm all jet, jet, yeah. I, and maybe there's a bit of that uh, nervous energy as well. Maybe the, the police in riot gear are a little concerned that something might go down, and so they're jumpy, and that creates even more gas on the fire, doesn't it? Yeah. the Quarkast segment that we were doing because back on Friday when we were first recording it, which was June 5th, right as I was making that point, as we were talking about race relations and riots and how police are dealing with peaceful protesters and some other very difficult parts of this whole d dilemma, Sean was finding out as I was teasing him, and I uh, quickly realized it was more serious than me just giving him a hard time, that The Athletic, his employer, has announced that they were making a series of layoffs. In fact, 46 members of The Athletic's writing staff were laid off on Friday, June 5th, and then I believe everybody else in the company took a pay cut around 10% or so. I'm not sure on the exact figure. So, Literally, as I was making that point, Sean told me, hang on, and I kind of teased him because I thought he was just distracted, and it turned out, unlike sometimes where I have caught him looking at a message from his editor on a drive home from a Stars game or just glazing over it as I take too long to make a point, 
this time it was serious and it really affected him uh, emotionally, mentally, uh, obviously uh, financially. Fortunately, Sean still has a job as he's been on Twitter the last few days and mentioned that indeed he's still the Dallas Stars beat writer for The Athletic and we're very thankful for that. However, uh, in the process of trying to get back together and finish the 11th episode of the Quarcast, the weekend, so it would have been June 6th and 7th, weren't great for either of us to put together a finished product. On Saturday, I did a last resort fill-in show on the ticket with Bruce Levine, my co-host on the radio for Dallas Stars broadcast, and then uh, just had a busy time trying to connect with that. Couldn't find time on Sunday, and then uh, so I, I kind of, as Sean was doing some things with his own personal life, I said, you know what, we've had some people reach out that are big Quarkest fans that want to know if we're going to have the 11th episode, which of course usually comes out late Friday afternoon or early Saturday after we recorded on that Friday. And in this case, it has not. And it's now already Tuesday, June 9th, and we are only four days away from maybe doing the 12th episode of the Quarkest. But I had a wonderful, inspirational moment uh, earlier this week when one of our diehard listeners of the Quarkest sent me a direct message, and he said that he had a long drive of about 14 hours on Wednesday, tomorrow, and said, are we going to have a Quarkest this week? Because he really would love to listen to that to help eat into that driving time. And if not, could he just simply have me make a phone call, call him, and talk to him for, about the stars for an hour or two. And that just made me laugh and laugh. So uh, in efforts to try to complete the Quarkast, and of course, a piece to our listeners, because that's why we're doing that. We probably wouldn't have done this had it only been for the sake of me and Sean being able to you know, have a catharsis of a sense of sort of feeling like we're talking hockey being back to normal during a pandemic and, and everything that's gone on since then. But in those efforts, we wanted to try to finish that off. So I talked to Sean, and he didn't have a great schedule this week to try to do this before our next recording. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish it by myself. So that's me rambling for a couple of minutes to try to connect the sudden stopping point that we had in our second segment with the end of it. Now, we initially had planned to do two parts of the racism systemic problem in the United States and around the the world. One was talking about it just in general on a global standpoint, and then we were going to tie in with the NHL because there's been some reactions and things that have gone on with NHL players, and lots are starting to speak out on this issue, and uh, it's great to see them no longer being quiet, and we're all trying to be better at not just being sort of a passive, inactive member of this where we don't stand for racism, of course, but we don't really speak up and say if we notice something is wrong or do the right thing about it. Um, Tyler Sagan and Marty Turco uh, went to one of the riot, uh, not the riot, excuse me, that's poorly said. They went to one of the peaceful protests, and thankfully it was very peaceful, as most of them are, and and seeing them out there not just talking the talk, but walking the walk, I think is very important and doing more for the communities in which they live here in Dallas. So unfortunately, because of our circumstances with surrounding Sean's whole employer issue going on from Saturday or Friday of last week to now, 
I don't really want to do a whole segment without him because it's a lot more fun and interesting to have a conversation between two colleagues and friends than it is to just hear me ramble on and on and on. That being said, our buddy in his car for 14 hours probably wouldn't mind if I kept going for a bit, even if it was nonsensical drivel, because at some point it's eating away that drive time, uh, which is funny, but seriously, we got to move on from that. So this was me as a bit of an interlude to explain why we paused in the middle of our segment and why we're now moving on instead of finishing that topic to the lightning round. So I'll do a solo lightning round next. Welcome to the lightning round. It's solo today and this week because of what I just explained. So if you didn't just pop up and turn on the Quarcast in the final segment, you actually listened from the start, I don't need to explain myself, but I'm going to anyway because I'm the only one here. So I might as well talk to myself a little bit more, right? Anyway, let's get to it. Our lightning round is, this is tough because Sean and I have two different perspectives and have certain questions that one is sort of more geared toward answering than the other, uh, answering that is. And if in this case, I think there might be a question or two where it's related to him and we may not be able to have him answer the question. So if you feel after re- listening to this episode of the lightning round, or at least this segment of the episode, that you didn't get an adequate answer because Sir Shapiro isn't here, well, then ask it again for next week's car quest or quarkast. Anyway, let's move on. First one we had was from Crawdaddy, who said phase three of Texas's reopening includes a provision in which Texas sports facilities can host fans up to 50% capacity. Does this affect the chances of Dallas being a hub city? Uh, I don't believe so for two reasons. One, I was under the impression that the Texas sports facilities had to be outdoors which does not help anybody playing at American Airlines Center. Now, if you are the Texas Rangers and your brand new ballpark with the roof open, it would certainly constitute being outdoors. If you had the Jerry World roof open, sort of, maybe. Definitely FC Dallas, Toyota Stadium in Frisco. Um, that might have something to do with it, but no, it would not affect it. And even if it did... Right now, the NHL's plans for hub cities for at least the early rounds of the NHL playoffs, whether it be the qualifying rounds, the first, second rounds, those are all expected to be played without fans and in those two hub cities, which they have yet to be determined, of course. They're always, and the commissioner mentioned this last week, there's always a possibility that the conference finals or even the Stanley Cup final might be played in a third hub city like a a third neutral site or potentially even in their own buildings empty if as they get down the road in the coming months 
that it may actually happen where those types of traveling two teams versus, in this case, 24 to start might be difficult. So it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. But no, I don't think this has any... I mean, it doesn't hurt Dallas being a hub city, but doesn't really benefit because as of this moment, anything goes that's going on in the NHL's return to play format is being done with the presumption of no fans in the arenas. Because again, the whole reason they're doing this as a hub city is not to try to find a place where they can have fans. It's to try to have a place where they can actually conclude the 2019-2020 season with the players staying healthy in these bubbles. If it was not about that, then obviously they could be playing and traveling back and forth to their own stadiums because that would be less of a concern. It's all about player safety and trying to make sure that they do not contract coronavirus or spread it and it becomes a bigger epidemic. So thank you for the question. The next one is one of those ones where, actually the next couple are, where it would be better to have both of us here than just me at the moment. But uh, Galapagos wrote in happy 21st anniversary of Game 7. That's always always fun. Um, and has the Quarkast duo had the ice cream sundae Pop-Tarts that you put in a freezer, then when you eat them, the filling has a consistency of ice cream. I've never even heard of those. Now, I obviously know a lot more about Pop-Tarts than Sean, which is funny because I don't eat them on a regular basis. Uh, once in a while, maybe, but it's not a, a staple of my breakfast food uh, go-to, but it's... Obviously, I knew more than the fact that Sean didn't even know that you're supposed to put him in the toaster first, which I still find really, really funny. Um, but no, the idea of you could put a ice cream sundae Pop-Tart in the freezer and it tastes like ice cream with pop I mean, I'd try it for sure. I mean, you know me if you haven't already. Ice cream is a huge vice of mine. I like it too much. I probably shouldn't eat it as frequently as I do. I'm uh, trying to not crush it too much, but yeah, big fan of ice cream. So I'll always try that, but doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to stick with that. French Toast writes in, Sean, oh, so already we're at a disadvantage for this edition of the lightning round because it's addressed to the he who is not here or present anyway. He's here, not in the house, but moving around DFW, of course, at his house. Says, Sean, I appreciated the self-reflective article, uh, nature of your article on racism. Thank you for being vulnerable and sincere. I will, of course, pass that along. Of course, it was tagged to Sean, so he'll have seen it also. Given time to reflect, will Bonus make any meaningful changes to offensive approach or just stay the course with D and Muck? Well, that's funny that you mentioned that because if you didn't hear, uh, I actually had, along with Bruce, on Saturday... Rick Bonus on our airwaves on the ticket as we did a segment interviewing him from Nova Scotia where he is right now at his summer residence. And Bones has acknowledged that obviously the Stars want to add more offense than what they were doing, particularly in that six-game losing streak right before the pause in, in March. And here's the thing. I just got done watching Game 7 of the Colorado Avalanche Dallas Stars 1999 Western Conference Final. Uh, we are going to review next week that game, and we finally got to finishing that because we've sort of been chipping away amidst all the nonsense that's been going on in the House Newkirk life bubble of the last couple of weeks. More on that if you listen to The Last Resort on the ticket. But anyway, that series 
at the end, I'll never forget just because I just finished watching it. Mike Madonna was interviewed and he said, well, you know, we got run and gun in the first couple games of the series with Colorado. And we realized that even though we split those games, we couldn't, we couldn't maintain that. We had to get back to starting from protecting our net going forward, defense and out, and then attacking off of that, which is basically counterattacking. And they were able to beat the Avs in seven games and move on to face Buffalo. We'll talk about that in our next episode of the Quarkast when we do our game recap and of that series. But the point is that Rick Bonus has a lot of similarities in terms of how his philosophy is coming from working with Jim Montgomery and then taking over when Montgomery was fired, which is the Dallas Stars are going to be a defensive-minded, structured team that wants to score goals, but they want to do so in a way where they don't sacrifice the play in their own end. And, and Bones said on our show that they've been really good without the puck, but they need to be a little bit better with it. And part of it is trying to balance out his four lines. He wants to be rolling wave after wave. And he said that we actually have to get the young guys, Rope Hintz and Dennis Gurionov, to play longer shifts. It's kind of funny to hear that because a lot of times when you think about shift length, you think of guys that stay out too long and that messes up the flow of rotating your lines because, for example, a guy like Alexander Radulov, who typically tends to hang around for a longer shift than he should, if his two line mates have already changed and now the next guys on the, you know, the next wave is out there for 15 seconds or even 20 seconds and Rads is still out there, then that means that the guy that's supposed to replace Radulov, typically on the right wing, isn't with his line. So now everything is, is bungled up and that happens. Sometimes you can't get off. You get stuck in a defensive zone, you get hemmed in. But that's part of the job of the coach on the bench to try to juggle what happens when his line combinations get out of sorts, sometimes just through the way the game is and sometimes because somebody is out there for too long. Well, he's saying the same thing is happening. The vice versa is that at times, Hintz and Gurionov are actually taking too short of a shift. They're, they're you know, out there for 20, 25 seconds when they want, they're going for like 35 to 40 seconds. And so the next guy has to come on because if a guy comes to the bench, you can't say, no, 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 stay out there. Now, I paused and say that when you're playing in beer league and you have three people on the bench and everyone's exhausted because you don't have enough to roll a line, there will be times where they say, no, 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 stay out there. I'm exhausted. I can't possibly get on the ice yet. You need to give me more time. Been in that situation before. Uh, it's not a lot of fun. It's better when you have at least two lines so you can go back and forth and get a breather. Um, but that's neither here nor there. With this case, I think they're just working about with, you know, Bones and his staff have been communicating on a weekly basis, if not more frequently than that, and looking at things and analyzing the opponents because they don't know who they're going to play. It could be just about anybody. The only thing we know for sure is that the Dallas Stars in the first round of the 2020 Stanley Cup playoffs will not face Colorado, St. Louis, or Vegas. Everybody else is up for grabs based on the reseeding, which we talked about earlier. And so because of that, they have to try to do as much as they can to try to figure that out, who's going to be where, and be ready for anybody because they don't know which team and which challenge they're going to have to face. Uh, As far as changing their style, I don't think they're going to make massive style changes because they know what has worked for most of the season and they are adamant that they've been one of the better teams in the NHL for a large chunk of the regular season. 
Obviously, the 1-7-1 one, one start was awful, so they don't want to play like that. And the 0-6 or 0-4-2 that they finished the pre-pause part of the schedule with wasn't very good, and they were struggling to find offense there. Um, so it's sort of a mix between, I think there will be some some changes. I don't know if they will be drastic. You know, French Toast, you, you mentioned meaningful changes. Uh, I think that they will be somewhat meaningful in terms of how they want to play with and without the puck. But when you say stay the course, they're going to tweak it, but they're not going to deviate from the defensive hard-to-play-against style that got them to where they are and how their team is somewhat built around. So even though you mentioned Sean as part of that, I'm going to still hopefully do some justice to that. But I did also appreciate the self-reflective nature of his article on racism because in, when talking about that, that's kind of the point, is to look at yourself. Okay, it's, it's easy to stand up and say to somebody else, you're part of the problem or you're not doing enough or you can be better. But I think the best leadership at times has to come from within and look at yourself first and say, okay, what can I do? What can I do to, to make the world a better place? Uh, it, whether it's you know some large gesture or even something little. And uh, it's important to, to have empathy for other people and also notice that none of us are perfect. None of us. So if we can all just be a little bit better, maybe we can help do our part. I don't know, something like that. Uh, Ardell writes in, Tyler Sagan. Any planned stories for The Athletic where he will be interviewed? Do the NHL and NBA have better relationships between players, unions, and owners than, say, baseball? Well, I think that goes without saying. Um, I can't answer to is whether Sean has any Tyler Sagan planned articles, but I can tell you this. In talking with Bruce and I were doing the show on Saturday, and we were sort of kicking around talking about the differences in one of our segments between basketball, football, baseball, because obviously hockey's we did had done we were doing another segment with having Bones on, and MLS we were having Luchi Gonzalez on. Clearly, you can just see the difference between the players' union and the ownership of baseball is much much more fractured and hostile it currently and it feels like it's been that way for a while than the nhl and the nba by far of the five i'm saying five i hate when they say four major sports leagues because well mls doesn't have the tv ratings around the united states that the other leagues i think have i believe that i mean i'm a big soccer fan soccer is a global game it's the most popular sport in the world and it's growing rapidly in MLS. They're adding more franchises. More people are watching. They need a better TV deal. The next one, they go blah, 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 blah. But the point is is that MLS is a major sport. And so the, of the five leagues, I think baseball by far is the worst as far as the relationship between the players' unions and the ownership. And I think we've seen that in how they've been trying to deal with this. Now, uh, the NHL is not perfect, and they have their own issues, but I think that they understand a bit about trying to be respectful to the players. The thing is, is that the NHL culture for a long, long time has always been sort of keep your head down, don't make a lot of political scenes, uh, and you know, sort of being discouraged from standing out because you want to be part of the team, not the individual. The NBA has had a better relationship for twofold. One, I think how they handle it, but also because that's what sells. The, the NBA is a collection of the best basketball players in the world, but there are personalities and it does help. And I'm not trying to do, to make any excuses here, but it does help that 
you play basketball without a helmet on. And so you can see their faces and you get more, I mean, the visual nature of that makes a huge difference. Soccer is the same way, although it's bigger and there's more guys on the field. There's 22 versus 10 at any one time. And, but you can actually see faces and hairstyles and expressions. It's harder to see in hockey because they have a helmet on and a visor. And in football, you have a face mask. I mean, it's really a big difference. But you can see there's a lot of personalities in football, and they show it a lot more in the media than the NHL does. So that's sort of my meandering way of saying that, yes, baseball does not have the relationship that hockey and basketball, and it's sort of incrementally, or there's stages, right? Baseball's showing right now that they're trying to salvage it, and they may still figure out a way to do it. But hockey, I don't think quite has what the NBA has as far as the relationship between players and owners, but it's definitely much on the side of better than bad compared to baseball, for sure. Uh, Oleg, uh, the Les Jackson contract got me thinking. He says, does COVID and the financial fallout from it have any impact on the bonus slash any other head coach hire? Possible we aren't willing to spend for a, let's say, gallant. You know, Oleg, that's an interesting question, but I don't think that that actually has any impact. I think that Jim Nill is a man of his word, and he told Rick Bonus that he he asked him to step in and do the job to finish out the season. So in doing that, obviously, he plans to ride the course. Now, the question, I guess, is, is that there are a lot of people that say, well, why not jump it? He's interim. You haven't even decided if you want him for next year. Do we charge forward and find somebody better? Well, I like Gerard Gallant. I think he's a good head coach. Is he the savior? Can the Stars win? The Stars were winning with Rick Bonus. Um, I'm not saying that you should stick with Bones. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I think that you have to wait until the playoffs run out because if the Stars have a good playoff and go deep in the playoff and they show that they can do well, Bones might be the head coach next year. If they struggle in the playoffs, I really don't think he will be. Um, but the, you know, and what if it's in the middle ground? What if they do what they did last year, which is win around, get close through the second round and just maybe not get over the hump. What I don't think though, is that the financial fallout will affect the Dallas stars and their coaching hires. I don't believe so because here's the thing. It's one thing to try to, uh, and, and forgive me for the phrase trim the fat. I'm not trying to suggest that Les Jackson is excess at all, but, um, you know, there are some moves on the edges of the organization or not the center of it where maybe they felt they could they could do some cutback of surplus. Head coach is kind of a big deal when it comes to a professional sports team, especially a team versus, you know, something individual. And so I don't think the Dallas Stars, if they want to try to protect their team investment, whether it be ownership or the front office, will be looking at not spending what needs to be spent because I don't think the difference between a Rick Bonus contract and a Gerard Gallant will be enough. I mean, it could be a million dollars. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. But I guess what I'm really saying is that when you look back at the difference between the going on on a cheap versus a real... I mean, unless they go for a Mike Babcock-style contract... They're all going to be relatively within a range of a couple million dollars. Now, to us plebes, a couple million dollars is a lot of money. It is to most people. But 
and even maybe to head coaches. But here's the thing. No, I think they're going to try to do what they believe is best for the Dallas Stars. And you hear that a lot. It may sound cliche, but that's what they're trying to do. I think they're going to try to take all the information available and make the best informed decision they can. Jim Nillen and uh, the ownership with Gillardi and Nils, his, his team in the front office will decide where they're going to go. I don't think the financial fallout of COVID will have that much of an impact. Uh, Jared, last question, because I can, like I said, I can ramble. I've already been talking to myself for about 20 minutes. So just imagine what I do when there aren't uh, microphones in my face. Jared says, interested to hear what music will be played on today's Quarkast. Yeah, I have to figure that out as well. Um, can we get more stories on women and or minorities who cover hockey? Taylor Baird has an interesting backstory. My niece, age 15, thinks she wants to cover hockey when she grows up. Well, certainly have to toss that over towards Sean when he's back because as a hockey writer, he's the one that's doing those stories. As a hockey broadcaster, I like to pull those stories and add them to any broadcast. We don't have any broadcasts right now because they're not playing games. But yeah, no, look, whether it's uh, minorities of men or women or just women in general, uh, we all want to, to see more of that uh, inclusiveness where hockey really will be for everyone. And I thought Akeem Alou's article that we referenced a couple weeks ago was very appropriate, saying that it wasn't for everyone. It can be, but it isn't yet. And so that's the goal. And yeah, if you have uh, Jared, your niece who's 15, she wants to cover hockey when she grows up, awesome. You should encourage that. And it's becoming more and more friendly towards women. Um, I think that diversity in the NHL could do a lot better, but you know, one of the things to figure out is to, to start practicing, whether it's writing, broadcasting, you name it. And people ask me every now and then, you know, for advice of how do I get into being a hockey broadcaster or just any sports casting job? And the answer is always the same. You have to practice, right? You can't, just show up and say, well, I'm interested in this craft, but I don't have any practical experience and I haven't worked on my game, right? You can't go on the ice without having learned how to skate. You can't be a broadcaster without having learned how to broadcast in some form or another, whether that's going to broadcasting school, going to journalism, uh, you know, studying journalism in college where you, you work on your craft there or doing it on your own, okay? The, the amazing thing about technology nowadays is that you have recorders all over the place. You can do audio recording on any smartphone. You can do video recording on most devices. And so instead of before where you had to have a tape recorder or expensive video camera, now you can do on-camera stuff and audio things just about anywhere. I mean, I'm recording this on my laptop through a pair of headphones right now and microphone where you know, before you might've had to set up a, a home radio studio. I mean, obviously you probably have better sound than what I'm doing right now, but again, we're doing the best that we can with our limited budget of $0. But again, Jared and everybody that's listening again, find a way to, to practice it. And it might, if you're interested in doing play by play, it might feel a little uncomfortable at first to go sit in the stands of a game. Of course, right now there are no games or stands, but you know, let's say there are sports going on again and you can attend them to record on your phone or we always set a tape recorder back in the early days of me getting started and of a Little League game even and practicing play-by-play. -play. Would you share it with anyone? Maybe not because you're just practicing, but repetitions, right? Every time 
somebody works on their slap shot. They take shot after shot after shot. And the more shots they do, the more control they have, the better they are able to make contact. And maybe they can pick corners more and hit it harder and, and not fall over when you try to swing, <laughs> which happens from time to time. And any With any skill or discipline, the more you do it, the better you get, the smoother you are. Uh, let's face it, this is my first day talking. I've done a lot of it. So that's probably why I'm not... Uh, as I'm probably better than I was 20 years ago. I'd like to think that I can get better. But so that's sort of taking the tangent of the question of uh, more stories of women and minorities who cover hockey. We could use more of them. So hopefully more people hear this and then try to grind it out. And then they might have to go through some jobs that don't pay an awful lot. That's minor league sports, unfortunately. But it's also the way of you know, having a lot of fun. And so it might be about that journey and not so much about the destination. So final one came a couple days ago when Galapagos sent us a tweet that said, where is the carcast? I can't enjoy my weekend without it. Well, I'm sorry you didn't get it over the weekend, but I hope this somewhat quirky solo lightning round uh, gives you a little bit of fun because let's face it, Sean's not here to keep me in check so I can rattle on and say whatever I want. But that's, I think, good enough for today. Uh, I appreciate everybody who is showing some patience with the Quarcast this week because this was a difficult time for Sean to watch a lot of his colleagues deal with losing their jobs. Who don't? I mean, some incredible hockey writers and other sports, not just hockey, but some some of the ones that I'm more familiar with at The Athletic were on the hockey side that I really think highly of. Ken Weeb, for example, up in Winnipeg and Tom Reed in Columbus. And I don't want to, you know, I hope I'm not forgetting people, but I just say um, that, you know, we're all dealing with the coronavirus impact in one way, shape, or form. And we obviously wish all the, our colleagues that lost their positions well. And uh, hopefully things start to get back. But also, again, for those listening, please don't think that this is, pandemic thing is just over it's getting worse in places and so keep your social distancing keep wearing masks if you do have to go out in public don't just think that it's time to go play pick up soccer or hockey right now as much as I want to I'm dying to do those things to get out and just be normal again but um, you know do your best to try to think about everybody's general health and again that's going to be enough of my rambling because this is a car cast not a massive political thing but we this you know again a pandemic systemic racism i don't think those are political issues i think they have at times become politicized but when sean and i were talking about it in the earlier segment of this show this episode and me talking about it now i'm not talking about left or right uh, political parties aside i'm just simply saying think about your fellow human beings your fellow american citizens your friends your neighbors your colleagues Let's all try to do what we can. And with that, we'll be back next week, or in this case, later this week, with episode 12, which will be Sean, hopefully back. And we'll give him the floor a little bit because I've said enough. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the Quarcast this week. So long, everyone. There must be some way out of here. Said the joker to the thief. There's so much confusion I can't get no relief Businessmen, they drink my wine Proud men dig my earth 
none of them along the line know what any of it is worth. No, 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 no. No need to get excited. The thief he kindly spoke. There's so many among us. Think that life is but a joke. You and me, we've been through that. This is not our fate. Let us not speak falsely now. The hour is getting late, 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 late. All along the watchtower, the princess kept the view. Riders came riding mm, The north wind blew Outside in the distance The wind began to howl mm, Yeah, 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 yeah All along the watchtower All along the watchtower 